This is the Critical Transit Podcast, episode 43. Today we'll be talking about traffic signals with Matt Steele, a, uh, a recent uh, city council candidate in Minneapolis, and uh, and he has, has a lot of interesting things to say. He's a contributor on streets.mn, along with, with myself. Um, it's the urban transportation and design website, uh, focusing on uh, Minneapolis and, and, and Minnesota, I suppose. So... Um, we, uh, we had a really interesting conversation about uh, just, you know, about sort of how, you know, traffic signals came to be, you know, the way they are, and, you know, sort of questioning, like, or, you know, do we really need these things? And uh, it's an interesting thing that I've been thinking about for quite some time, so I'm happy to, to have Matt for this discussion. So I'll put links up to his work um, and uh, at deadstreets.mn and uh, his personal stuff as well. So, um, but right now I'm just going to roll the interview, and then when we come back, uh, we have some feedback. Uh, a couple of listener feedback items on uh, rail safety and bicycling, and I think uh, maybe one or two other things. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but it'll be cool. So stay tuned, and uh, here's my conversation with Matt Steele. I'm here with Matt Steele. Uh, Matt is a uh, former mayoral candidate uh, in Minneapolis here. He is also a contributor, probably more importantly, uh, a contributor to Streets.MN uh, along with myself. The city council um, candidate. I wouldn't want to be one of the 35. That's, did I say mayor? I'm <laughs> no, so sorry. Fine. No problem. <laughs> Just as crazy, though. Big big difference, yeah. yeah. Um, so, anyway, so thanks for, uh, thanks for coming by. Um, yeah. we, uh, we were going to talk about stoplights today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's, uh, it's very interesting. You had an interesting post uh, a couple weeks ago now about, uh, about traffic signals <laughs> and how... And you got something that I've really been thinking about for a while. It's like we, you know, these things are... These things are kind of there. They don't seem to be really necessary, and we have a ton of them. Um, what are your, uh, I don't know, what it's like, take us through maybe just like why, how did these things come to be? I mean, we didn't have cars, you know, 100 years ago, right? So. Well, exactly, and, you know, back in the day, shared space was pretty much the, the default domain as far as uh, streets in an urbanized setting, and eventually as cars came about, you know, there was, I, I think it was part natural where, you know, things... You know, we had so many more cars. I don't know if that's natural, but you know what I mean. Um, and then it was part kind of that whole uh, framing of transportation by the auto industry that created terms like jaywalking and that kind of thing. And all of a sudden you had all these cars trying to share this right away and you had to, you know, come up with solutions. So I think it was, you know, pretty early on when these original stoplights were created and somewhere like, uh, I didn't do too much uh, research of the history for that article, but... I did see where one was actually like a manual switch and they would have like a stoplight attendant that would flip the switch to change the directions. And so I thought, you know, okay, we've, we've advanced a little bit in that regard. But, nice. but, you know, they've evolved to what you see today where, you know, in the suburbs there's, you know, these stoplights that have like six lights on a mast and they're, you know, five or six phases and they're doing all this stuff and triple left turn lanes in some cases now. It's, it's, uh, Evolved, And, you know, a lot, I think a lot of times there's people that just like that for the sense of, you know, if you're kind of an engineer trying to solve those problems, you're naturally trying to solve them with that technology. And that's, you know, fine. But I think that has to be moderated because, you know, we need to be asking the fundamental questions of, well, why, why do we have this here? And so that's kind of what I try to do with the article. Yeah. And I mean, one of the interesting things to me is it's like, um, like you said, it's sort of a, an engineering solution to a problem. And there's, there's this misperception out there that it's, and a lot of people, you know, you talk to anybody, you know, out in the neighborhood, pretty much, I mean, you talk to a lot of people around the neighborhood, is 
you know, and the problem, it's, if there's a problem with a, with an intersection having a high crash rate or, you know, it's confusing or whatever the solution is, oh, put a traffic light. And it's, mm-hmm. Well, it's like, that's one of the things you get to is that that really doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, and that's, you know, I think that's the only way, you know, when the public is upset about something, that's how they petition because they don't know any other solution that's available. You know, t- just today I saw this uh, article about somebody in Los Angeles, a pedestrian that died crossing a street um, in front of a church or something, and it was two blocks each way to a stoplight, and, you know, there was a painted crosswalk, but this, you know, person unfortunately died trying to cross the street, and now the neighborhood is rallying for a stoplight there, but... You know, I, I pulled up the street on Google Maps, and it's not really. You know, it might work. It might make some. You know, might make it a little safer. Safer, but can we do better than that? I think we can. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, like a lot of stoplights, they're just horribly timed for for pedestrians. I mean, they put in. You know, the, the, in that situation like that, right? If they were to put in a traffic light, like you know, the traffic light would just be. You know, it would be green for three minutes, and you could you would have to push a button, but it wouldn't it wouldn't actually do anything. And you'd exactly. Have to, yeah. You know, um, and. But for some reason, it's like the red lights are like the the one law that drivers generally follow most of the time. Most mm-hmm. drivers. It seems that way, except during snowstorms when people take a little <laughs> bit more license with it when they don't want to stop all the way. But yeah, but it's, yeah, it's kind of amazing that people obey it that much. Which is interesting to me because you know, I mean, you look at crosswalks. I mean, drivers never stopping for crosswalks, so you could see that that being you could see that being one potential solution. And I guess if if traffic lights are something that people have sort of come to as a, as a means of dealing with drivers, if you will, you know? Yeah. It was the perfect one in um, in Somerville, Massachusetts, uh, next to Boston, where I used to live. Um, I have a cat on my lap, and she keeps uh, trying to bite me, so she's been kicked off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's this perfect example in, in Somerville, actually a couple of them, where it's a it's a full traffic signal, but it just flashes yellow. Yeah. Um, but there's a painted crosswalk there, which technically, if the light's flashing yellow and it's a painted crosswalk, the pedestrian has to right away, right? But there's also a button... That you can push, and if you push the button, it turns red oh. like, almost right away. It's sort of like a, almost like a punishment. It's like, okay, fine, if you want to stop for me, I'm going to make you stop. You but know, like... <laughs> I wrote an article about those for Streets as well about a year ago, and I think they're called Hawks. Uh, high air... I forget what it stands for, but Oh, basically... you're talking about the, yellow, the ones that push the button and you flash yellow. Is that what you're talking okay. about? No, I'm talking or about one that flashed even... yellow all the time, no oh, matter okay. what. Like a oh, normal yellow wow. flashing light. And then it would just change to red if you push the button. Well, that does the job even better, I guess. Yeah. But it's just as expensive, and... Yeah, yeah, right, right. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, this, these things yeah. are these things are not cheap. No, they aren't. I didn't really know the extent of it. You know, people kind of throw around um, a quarter to a half million dollars for a stoplight in these studies and everything. And when you're talking about it, and that you know usually applies more to your kind of suburban strode type uh, highway. Um, and you know, we have tons of those around the metro here. So, you know, in Hennepin County and a few even in Minneapolis. You know, Hiawatha Avenue and those types of mm-hmm. things. But but uh, really, the, the stoplight that inspired me to write this most recent article uh, was being replaced, and that's down at 46th and Bloomington. And it's kind of your simple, standard Minneapolis, you know, one street's green, one street's red. Um, and even those, I guess, are, you know, they can push $100,000 or more. So that's not a lot. Or, you know, it's not chump change in a city that uh, that has a lot of priorities and that, you know, we, we're struggling to find ways to, you know, build better transit service or, um, you know, bike facilities or those types of things that could go a long ways. You know, and the Lydicky also brought up in the comments, I believe, that it, it can cost $3,000 a year just for the power and the, you know, the other things that go into, you know, light bulbs and whatever they have to change every now and then for actually just operating a stoplight. So that's a lot. 
I mean, do we have the technology now to, to have the lights sort of, I mean, it seems like we have technology to have lights respond to, you know, to vehicles being on sensors and all kinds of other things. Like, do, do we have technology to have them only operate at certain times of day or just change their cycles and is that stuff going on? Oh, you know, I think that they do. And we've seen that evidence in other, you know, other cities have that a lot. Um, I don't think that we're using that much in Minneapolis. You know, they tried to uh, time all the stoplights on Hiawatha. And they did Washington Avenue downtown. And, of course, Park and Portland are kind of known for having their sequence. But um, really, I think what they're trying to do right now in the city, and this is part of the project that we've seen in the neighborhoods, a lot of the stoplights being replaced. The old stoplights, some of them had mechanical controllers. And I, I don't know, there was a stoplight uh, uh, kind of guru who jumped in the comments and was <laughs> talking about it. And a lot of them date from right after World War II through the 50s. And we're just replacing that now. So my guess is that, you know, there will be some benefit once we can replace all this with newer technology. They'll be able to control more of everything from a network perspective. But, you know, control is kind of good and bad. You know, in theory, if you can control all these lights, you can make things more efficient. But at the same time, you can also have a lot of unintended consequences. And one thing that reminds me of, in, um, in Boston, there's... I remember they were tooting this because I lived there for many years. Uh, listeners know, um, and you know they they were at one point they had this, this high tech traffic control center where they were tooting at one point where you know where they have they can control like most of the signals and and they you know they have this well it's a, it's a control center where they can they can manipulate the signals and have cameras and other things and it's you know it, it's good on the one hand because you can get I remember we were able to try to get transit signal priority with that and you know you can get priority for ambulances and all that but it's like at some point it's just like what is this. You know, what are we doing? Like, we're putting all these resources into this, and it's like, you know, what if, you know, wouldn't we should just do an experiment and just like turn them all off and see what happens? You know? Exactly, yeah. And, you know, that was where I ended up in that article. Basically, the premise was that we, we don't need them all, and, you know, we actually keep spending more and more and creating more complexity, um, you know, through replacing these and adding them. Uh, you know, there have been a few examples where we remove them as we brought up, but, um, you know, we keep making this more complex, and then we never step back to say, well, could could this actually function more efficiently without that layer of control? And, you know, the shared space model or, you know, other things that kind of encourage just natural kind of, um, you know, people figuring out the right away for themselves. And, a lot, you know, that can be safer, and I think we need to give that consideration. And that's that's something interesting because like I've always felt that it's safer when you know cars are having a, to go slow and they're not sure what's going to happen and mm-hmm. so the green light sort of seems like this carte blanche like I can just drive forty miles an hour and just mm-hmm. you know I'll just go. Yeah, and that actually plays a huge part in why stoplights can be so dangerous because you know when people you know when they work they work well for the most part despite being extremely expensive but um, it, it's totally that you know mentality you speak of where it's all or nothing. It's I'm going as fast as I can or I'm stopped. And when there's any fault there in the whole system or people don't stop, you know, you get these people crossing and T-bone accidents where somebody's going, you know, even in Minneapolis, if you're going 30 miles an hour down a street and you miss a red light, that can be disastrous and take a life. And we've seen that in some cases. And all of the other examples that we brought up, um, you know, even a stop, a four-way stop, it's as simple as that, or roundabouts or whatever else, um, shared space, everybody has to slow down. And so then naturally, you know, you might have the same crash rate, but the severity is actually a lot less significant because people are going slower through the intersection. So. 
Mm-hmm. It's improved safety. And I think like one of the other factors that we often don't consider, you know, we think about you know the traffic light as as like the the electronic or the electric device. Um, you know, we don't think of all the other stuff that goes into it. So you got these you got these big left turn pockets, and you know when you have when you have traffic lights, like you need what engineers call storage, mm-hmm. right? So you're like you got you know your cars traveling in packs, and then they all have to sit and wait there, and you need like room for like ten, twenty, you know, thirty, however many cars, right? Yeah. Um, and it's like it's funny because the engineers they like, they hate the they hate that like um what they call wasted time whenever the light changes, right? I mean I don't know if you get into this engineering world at all. Sounds like um, you know it better than I do. But I'm, I'm a planner, and uh, we we feud a lot with engineers because <laughs> engineers are very much concerned with like car throughput, and we're like we're thinking about people, so like, yeah. you know, people on buses and stuff. But it's you know they they talk about you know needing all the storage, and it's like if you if you reimagine it in a totally different way, like maybe you wouldn't even need all this space. Because we get like you know they're, they're like oh there's no room for a bike lane. It's like well, why is there no room for the bike lane? Because you got like two left turn lanes there, and you know and. Exactly. They're always trying to, um, you know, carve out turn lanes and things like that. And I think, you know, on a case-by-case basis, there might be a place for that. But what I experienced in in the neighborhood corner right near my house, I would sit at this coffee shop right on the corner. And, I mean, I sit there all the time, so I know that corner extremely well. And just like you said, there's this storage problem where um, we'd have 10 or 12 cars or more during rush hour that would line up and it would go back, you know, two blocks from the stoplight. And then when we had this four-way stop and they were replacing it, suddenly everything was smoother. Um, you know, we had maybe three or four cars waiting to go through the stop sign at most. And so that takes a driver, I don't know, maybe 20 seconds if it's bad to wait through, you know, for four cars to go ahead of them. But um, when you think about sitting at these stoplights in the middle of the night or late at, you know, off-peak hours when there's absolutely no reason to be sitting there for two minutes or whatever it is, I think it's a fair trade-off. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not normally one to uh, be be a big fan of, like, uh, you know, making things easier for car drivers. <laughs> I'm generally, you know, as a transit person, you're going to say something that seat. Oh, no, I'm not either, but I think, you know, <laughs> maybe... Personally, I think that this is there's cases where um, things can be better for everybody, and we've just made them complex. You know, it's not an issue. It's not a zero-sum game where it's, okay, we're making this worse for cars and better for transit or vice versa. In most cases, I usually uh, don't <laughs> like to favor cars. But uh, in this case, I think we can actually, you know, um, getting rid of stoplights in a lot of cases can make the human scale or the, the sidewalk realm and the, you know, bikeability and everything actually a lot better. And if a side effect is that it's better for cars, too, I guess that's not the worst thing. Okay. I mean, what I'm getting at is that, um, you know, I think about think about buses. And, you know, there's often, it's very difficult politically to think about, you know, dedicated space for buses, which really would be the, the, the ultimate solution. But, um, you know, the, the unpredictability of, of stoplights and, and other things, you know, just general unpredictability of traffic is it's a big problem for transit because you either you're running late or... You know, you're padding the schedule with extra time, and then you're sometimes you're spending a lot of time sitting at the stops waiting, you know, to be on schedule. Mm-hmm. So it's you know, if we can sort of kind of get that under control, there was I think it was one example of a stop of a horrible stoplight from uh, you know another place where I lived where you had you had the bus literally. Um, this is a everybody knows uh, Davis Square in uh, Somerville. It's basically there's a, a complex intersection. It's like five or six different approaches, and you know they have their own signal, and then like. You know, 50 feet up one approach is, uh, is the exit from a busway. And so there's all these buses coming out constantly, and you get this signal, 
it's like it's a three minute cycle. The bus, you know, the bus could turn right if it's going out right, but he can't take a left you know, on the red signal. And sometimes they would do that, and you know, I didn't tell anybody. But you know, you you got to come in, you got to wait three minutes. So so what happens is the light turns, you know, the light's green is a very short. You get a very short phase, and then you know somebody comes running for the bus. Also, you open the door and you let them in. Well, now the light turns to red. Now okay, now you're mm-hmm. now you're already three minutes late. You haven't even pulled out of the stop yet. Oh yeah, I think everybody. You know, that sounds like it's an extreme example, but I'm sure everybody who rides the bus. You know, even here in Minneapolis, we've all seen it where a bus stops right before the intersection, and, you know, the, you could tell the driver wants to make the green light, and yeah. then all of a sudden <laughs> somebody's taking a long time to board or whatever, and then it turns red. Yeah, and this is uh, this is one of those things that, that I'm going to be talking about and I'm going to be posting about in the near future, actually, uh, you know, the near side and far side oh, stops. Oh, yeah. I'm a huge fan of far side stops. Yeah. I'm not sure about. But if you didn't, if you had a stop sign, then yeah. the near side stop is usually the way to go. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, you still have issues with the cars turning in front of you and people crossing in front of the bus and stuff. But like you're coming to the stop and it's you know that's why you're not stopping twice. If it's far side, you're stopping twice. But if you have these yeah. these signals, you know, then you're yeah, like you said, unpredictability. Or maybe we stuff. could just train all drivers to <laughs> yield the right of way to buses, even at go. stop signs, and then buses can just kind of slowly cruise through an intersection without stopping. I like that solution actually. That's that's good. I mean, we get these these uh, you know safe professional drivers there. Right? Yeah, yeah. It it never it never ceases to amaze me the the drivers who do dumb really really dumb shit. Like uh, the one that was common when I lived in New York was that the cars would crash into the back of the bus when it was at the stop. It's like okay, like you know what this thing is. Yeah. Like this is a bus. It makes stops. You can see it. <laughs> you can it, see it's it. It's rather large. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so people people crash to the back of the buses and then. Here, here I see this a lot. You know, we get these nearest head stops, that, the drivers that are making the right turn in front of the bus. Oh, you know, yeah. Like the right hook, essentially, for, mm-hmm. for a bike. But only, uh, That's dangerous. It's so dangerous. I mean, it's probably illegal, right, for a driver it's the, to yeah, do that? Yeah, it's illegal. Well, it's illegal yeah. to, to cut someone off. But it's you know, it's funny, like, the, a lot of the people who are against bike lanes will, will talk about how the, the bike lanes kind of set you up for that in a lot of situations. So. Yeah. Well, a tough situation. Maybe that's another discussion for another time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so. but I think this just brings up how... Especially in an urban environment like this, and our streets, you know, there's so many constraints. You're trying to do so much with limited right-of-way and so many different, use, you know, groups of users, transit, bike, um, drivers, everything else, uh, people that are, you know, in businesses right there. Um, there. It's so complex, and there's so much nuance that has to be figured out in all of these situations. And that's why I'm not, you know, suggesting that we rip out all the stoplights or anything. I mean, I think most of them probably serve a good function. But I think the one thing that we need to have, and I, I think it has a lot more to do with just how than how we're controlling traffic, but, it, you know, it's the same thing for, you know, putting in bike infrastructure. But we need to have that, that nuanced discussion. We can't just look at a, a, a you know, a cross-section or whatever of, a proposal for, you know, a street, wherever it is, and say, oh, this is good or bad, because, you know, every little driveway, every intersection, every bus stop, every street tree, everything like that has to be thought out, and it has to be flexible for the future, and it has to be, you know, all those different types of things. It's it's a really, it's a living and breathing kind of ecosystem, our streets, I think. Mm-hmm. That's what's fun about them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the people watching, you know, if nothing else. Um I like being out when it's snowing. Like today, it's it's super cold here, and maybe mm-hmm. I should ask you that question. Why does anybody live in Minneapolis? Because they grew <laughs> up here. I don't know. You know, it's a great city. We make up for it for the cold. It's 
And it's beautiful in a way, too, when it's this cold and the frost develops on the trees and everything. So. Yeah, I, I just want it to stay above 10 degrees so that my eyelashes don't freeze when I'm biking. Oh. That's all I want. I have to say, I haven't even done winter biking yet, so that's oh, okay. my New Year's <laughs> resolution, actually. But, oh, cool, cool. We'll, yeah. we'll get you into it. Yeah. Um, so, um, you, you talked about solutions. I wanted to get to that real quick. Um, you know, we talked about, talked about stop signs, um, but there are other things that are ways of controlling traffic that are not signals. Yeah, there are, and, you know, um, I think a four-way stop is obviously the easiest, and it's something we can test immediately. I'm pretty sure every stoplight, they can switch to just flash red, uh, and people know what that means. But, you know, there are cases, I showed an example here in Minneapolis of um, a roundabout that we have, and that's actually pretty rare because most of our corners here, they have, you know, businesses and storefronts and buildings right up to the right-of-way, uh, and you can't take that away, or we don't want to. To create a roundabout but there are cases where we can and that might make sense um and then there's also um you know shared space that whole concept of well i had a picture of monderman in the uh in the article and i don't even know too much about shared space to be honest i really like next time i'm in europe or something i want to go seek it out and find you know just observe it but there's that whole you know the point in um yeah video. in the uk where there was that uh see if i can pull that up but that was the that was the case where it wasn't. I think it was just converted to a roundabout, right? It was there was a complex traffic signal, and then they mm-hmm. um, everybody was opposed to it, and they had a you know it's sort of like the people who get you know come out and opposed to bike lanes and stuff. But the you know they were very opposed to it, and they thought it was just going to wreck the neighborhood and all that, and yep. um, and it wound up improving things. It actually carries more traffic, um, and I think those people should forever lose their right to comment on transportation projects. <laughs> yeah, and you know I think well. People are just fearful of change, and you know, so they don't lose their right to speak about it, but they shouldn't have any, any authority behind that either. Yeah. And the people that had authority that were speaking out against it, you know, we need to explore that a little bit and just figure out why they're so uh, opposed to change. And I think that brings up a good example, too, about, um, you, know, you know, we talk about these intersections as things to control, but really our urban environment is a complex system that... Uh, that can adapt, you know, I, I'm thinking about, you know, in Poynton, it was kind of this rural town outside of London, and it was a main crossroads right in the middle of this traditional town center, but in Minneapolis or in most other cities, we have this street grid, and it's an amazing thing, and it's very adaptable, and we don't even have ways to really, um, you know, measure those things, and so we just need to try things out like they did over in, in England. Yeah, I'm a big fan of experiments, you know, all you need to, uh, I think it was, there was a, some city in the UK where they said that there was, they wanted to make it like reversible within three hours or something. Was, oh, really? Yeah, there was, it was somewhere, I forget where it was, it was where they, they wanted to make it so that in, in order to make it politically, uh, viable, they, they said that like it, it could be reversed in three hours or something if, if there was a significant uproar, you know? Oh, it's kind of dangerous because uh, you know it takes a little while for people to get used to things. Exactly. But uh, with this case, whatever this case was, I remember it like it didn't. You know, it people was are okay with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. That's the thing. People they're fearful of change, but then once they see something, it's you know. I think a lot of times we can do a better job of visualizing things ahead of time for the public. Mm-hmm. I think open streets is a great example in Minneapolis and other cities. You know, or better blocks that they do in other cities too. Um, just showing people what the possibilities are that gets over so much of that fear of change. You know, when you can just see it in real life, what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, 
the one the main concern I have with a lot of a lot of changes, not that um, not that I don't want change, <laughs> I obviously do. I think we desperately need it. Um, one thing that often comes up is is the issue of pedestrian safety. Um, that often gets it's just a, it's just a difficult thing to deal with in this this culture where mm-hmm. you know drivers are, are king essentially. And um, so when you move to you know a lot of people are fearful when you move away from something predictable that tells the driver you know you stop now. Okay, now it's your turn to go. You can walk. You know, you get like twenty seconds in a flashing quick signal, and but go, <laughs> go for mm-hmm. it. Um, but when you move away from that, and you sort of wind up with like you know a roundabout or a shared space or whatever, what's the natural instinct of people is just to like you know be still be afraid of the cars. Yeah. Is there? I don't know. Is there a way around that? that? Yeah. Well, you know, it's complicated. Cars are just so much different from everything. You know, in, in a way, you. It just seems like it's unnatural to have cars sharing space with bikes and people, but we have to make it work, um, or at least we do in our current culture that is, you know, we're stuck having cars for now, and um, I'd rather have that happen where people are going slow. I mean, it seems like a lot of times, you know, last week there was this example of somebody who got hit on the northern edge of Minneapolis and died, a pedestrian, it seems like we have this in the news all the time. And it's usually people going fast. In the article on Streets I'm in, I, you know, published this thing. I forget where I ripped it off of, but there's a lot of different places that have come up with the same result that shows, mm-hmm. you know, at 20 miles an hour, the likelihood of a, a, a death for a pedestrian being hit by a car versus 30 and 40. You know, you're much more likely to live at 20 miles an hour, kind of 50-50 if I recall at 30, and you're much obviously more likely to die at 40. I mean, that's a huge difference. And that's not a lot of speed, relatively speaking, in an urban environment for cars. You know, if a car is going 25 versus 35 or 40. And we've built all of our, you know, our arterial network and everything um, to accommodate cars going 35 or 45 miles an hour. And I think that's really the reason why people on foot are so uncomfortable. I know I'm uncomfortable when I'm trying to cross a street and it's hard to judge how fast cars are coming at me or, you know, the, the street, you know, because you said it's all these other factors of you need to have car storage or queuing or whatever on each side of the intersection for stoplights. Then you get, um, you know, you have 80 feet of pavement to cross or whatever. That's problematic. And, you know, a shared space like, like Pointon, I think the video speaks for itself and everybody should go check it out on YouTube. People, you know, there's big semi trucks coming through the countryside or they call them lorries over there, I guess, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and there's people walking to their neighborhood shop in town and they're all able to navigate this. It's pretty amazing. Um, and so in the article, I talk about how one of the solutions, and I'm just a huge fan of this in general, we need more, um, actual space for people to just wait or walk. Um, you know, a lot of times your average city intersection, it has, you know, two lanes in each direction, but it has a you know wide parking area or whatever. And so you have these, I don't know, it's 40 feet of pavement in each direction. And there's some great examples where you have a little refuge median right up against the, you know, the, uh, the intersection. And it allows people to, to navigate things a little more efficiently. And I'm actually a fan of them at non-signalized crossings too. I think we need tons more in Minneapolis. You know, we have one. Mm-hmm. down here at 38th street and everything. And it allows for people to, it, I, I feel like, and I haven't seen a study about this or anything, but it personalizes the, the encounter between a pedestrian and a driver. I know I've experienced a lot of times when let's say off to my left, there's a pedestrian that wants to cross and there's a car coming at me in the other lane. 
and they're not going to stop, it kind of abdicates my responsibility to stop for the pedestrian and allow them to cross because it's not like it makes a difference anyways. Whereas if, as soon as you have that island and you have one lane of traffic going in each direction, then, you know, and this can happen out in the middle of a, a block or it can happen at a stoplight or whatever else or a, a four-way stop, um, it kind of encourages jaywalking. Even I don't think jaywalking is a dirty term, but uh, <laughs> it encourages people to make, you know, these small decisions. They don't have to contemplate going across a four-lane street. I don't think it's fair to call that a street, but with four lanes of people going 40 miles an hour in cars, it allows them to cross one lane where they can see, you know, look in the windshield of one driver and the driver can see that person. It, it personalizes that connection and allows for... I, yeah, I'm going on about this because I don't really have the language to describe how I think about it, but yeah. uh, no, it's interesting. maybe you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting. And, um, you know, I think, there's, I think there's two things in there. One of them being that um, the... The issue, you know, why I've always said that that you should never have to cross more than one lane of traffic, maybe one car lane plus a bike lane, if, if that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you never have to cross more than one lane at a time. You should have refuge in between because you know you have that you have this big space and you know it cuts down the space, especially for you know seniors, people with disabilities. But also, you have when you have two lanes, you have that double threat. Like the one car stops and the other one doesn't, especially yeah. if they're going the same direction and the other one doesn't see. It's like, you know, they tell you don't cross in front of the bus, you know, it's because you can't see. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, people get killed that way. So it's, I think that's one thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is that, that you mentioned, which is great, is that the, um, you often, you know, we're, we're funneled into this idea of like regulating everything. And so, you know, when you, when you regulate the places, you know, where the traffic stops, you, you, you sort of regulate the places where it's safe to cross or where it's, where it's permissible to cross, right? And you're supposed to cross at these places. Um, and many of these places are like unsignalized crosswalks. And, or, so if you have to wait a long time to cross at a signal, or you have to wait a long time because the car doesn't stop for an unsignalized crosswalk, it's like you're much more encouraged to just, you know, Take when you see a gap risk. in traffic, you're just going to go. And those risks are deadly. Well, they can compared be. Compared to can small also, risks. Right. Yeah. But they can also be, it can also be a lot safer to cross like in the middle of the block because oh, yeah. you, you're, you know, seeing it for yourself and you're, you're making sure there's no cars coming. Whereas if you just try to depend on that crosswalk, it's, mm-hmm. you know, your chance are going to get hit. I'm a huge fan of mid-block crossings in general or, you know, stretches between stoplights on, you know, if there's a stoplight every two or four blocks. I think it's easier, you know, if we built some sort of pedestrian median or a refuge island in the middle of the street and then made it so that those cross streets are right in, right out for the main street. So you're actually kind of breaking up the grid in a sense for, for vehicular traffic, but you're encouraging people to take advantage of the grid if they're on bike, you're on a bike or walking. Um, you, you have less of the conflicts, you know, a lot of times I almost got hit or I sort of got hit. I jumped on somebody's uh, hood oh, in downtown Minneapolis, somebody taking a left turn off of a, a one way to another one way. Uh, every big city in the downtown has this, you know, they have three or four lane streets going in, you know, one direction and people aren't looking, you know, I think drivers are not accustomed to looking for pedestrians when they're turning and it's extremely dangerous and just getting them away from that allowing people to take smaller rational risks is much preferable to having a system of control where you're you're forcing things and then as soon as they don't work the way you force them to work people take these extreme risks those are really the deadly risks and so we just need to encourage you know chuck marone on strong towns he had that uh and i'm sure you know it's from somewhere else but there's orderly but dumb or uh 
forget what the other one is, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just amazing how we have so many orderly, but dumb innovations in our society. And we need things that are a little more organic and just, uh, you know, we just try them out and see if they work. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's like a good, a good, uh, a good thing, a good place to be because, you know, then we're just, yeah, we're not like, we're not just regimen following the, I mean, we get into this and this is a, you know, sort of the, the way the government works, right? It's like you get into, you make these decisions that, that something is the right way or like these are the range of options and then something might make perfect sense, but because the politics and everything have decided, <laughs> you know, this is mm-hmm. going to be this way or these are our range of options. Then like, I think you, I think somebody was talking in the comments about how the, um, the Federal Highway Administration standards for traffic signals. Yeah. I think, that, I mean, that comes up, and it's just like somebody somebody at one point decided, like, I don't know what the criteria is for traffic signals. I know the criteria for, for having two lanes in, in the, you know, um, the same direction, it's something like, you know, if it has, like, 20,000 cars and something like that. And it's like somebody somewhere came up with this idea that, like, and I don't know what they based it on. Maybe it seemed rational or something, but, like, you just kind of apply that everywhere. is like, it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. You know, we have to question these standards because... You know, a lot of times they, they came about for, you know, people had good intentions and they might have even had some data to, to you know, encourage what they were doing. But things change. Um, behavior changes over time. Um, our environments change. And things are nuanced. You know, you can't have a standard and apply it in every situation where, you know, you need two lanes going in one direction when there's 28,000 cars. It's just, it doesn't work that way. That doesn't account for the realities of life. And we need to you know, have respect for the standards that engineers have, but we need to question why that standard applies. Um, and I think that there's a healthy sort of skepticism that we need to have. And uh, I think finally in cities, you know, urbanists, traffic, uh, or, you know, transit people, bike advocates, um, developers even, we're starting to finally question those assumptions and say, does this really make sense for us? And for a long time, we didn't do that. And the outcome of that was pure auto dominance because the, uh, you know, that was the goal of engineering. As you said earlier in the podcast, it was about capacity and moving cars efficiently and, you know, making cars weight as little as possible. And, you know, those are fine objectives on their own, but when you run them up against other things that they compete with, that's where we have to deal with that complexity. So I totally agree. Cool. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, I want to, I know we could talk all night. Um, unless you want to talk about bikes uh, not following traffic laws and whether they should have to do that. Those uh, Scott Law <laughs> bicyclists. Okay. Well, thanks for having me here. Yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks very much. Um, and thanks again to Matt Steele. Um, I know I found that conversation really interesting and informative, and uh, I hope you did as well. Uh, so as usual, please send your, your comments uh, and suggestions and ideas and everything else to feedback at criticaltransit.com. And I will write back and talk about it on the show, uh, unless you don't want me to, in which case I will not. Um, but you have to say that. So anyway, um, moving on along, I I thought well I should just say as far as uh, as far as the discussion is concerned, um, I think you know when you when you look at things through a, a an engineering like you know how can we move traffic flow kind of view uh, lens, then you know you wind up with solutions that that are sort of very narrow focused they're not not really solutions and you're just trying to adapt you know you've come up with this device that's you know meant to regulate the flow of traffic and you know it's, it's it 
it's questionable as to whether it regulates the flow of traffic, but it, it certainly, you know, can be effective in many situations. But the, the question goes, you know, do, do we really need it? Is, is it really an improvement over what we have without it? And uh, are the costs worth it? So it was a, it's an interesting topic to, to be thinking of. And I know this is something that, you know, really challenges the conventional wisdom. And conventional wisdom being that, you know, we need these stoplights. Um, but if nothing else, I mean, you know, speeding up uh, or improving the reliability of buses, uh, if nothing else. So, you know, hey, uh, send in your feedback and, uh, and we'll talk about it. So it's snowing here in, uh, in North America. Um, and it's been, been very, very cold where uh, we've been here in Minneapolis. And um, it's snowing in a number of places. And actually, I, uh, I, I somebody sent me a great comic uh, from Bikey Face, which is a, an awesome um, she's an awesome comic, and she is a, a regular, you know, year-round bicyclist in, in Boston, and uh, or somewhere near there, I think. Uh, I think Boston. Um, and she has a great comic on, you know, how uh, showing the. Uh, she's she, oh, she writes. Um, this week we got a bit of snow. People are surprised I'm still biking, but really, in this whole transportation mess, I have it easier than most. I just have to take the nicely cleared lane. Uh, but there's nothing like a little snow to show a city's priorities. And, uh, and that's what you see here. It's it's really the um, situation where you get the um, you get the nicely plowed lane for you know the, supposed to be for the car traffic, right? The car lane, and uh, nobody really gives a damn about the sidewalks. Um, you know, they say, oh yeah, it's the property owner's responsibility, but like nothing happens if it doesn't get done. And, um, even you know, even if it does get done, it's like so inefficient. Uh, there's no no reason that the city can't uh, you know drive a little you know maintain the sidewalks better and then all you have to do is you know drive one of those little brushes those little snow brushes um i took a picture of one and i'll see if i can get it up on the site um the other day i saw an action and uh you know on the uh, sidewalk adjacent to a hospital uh, you know big institution that has a lot of property and they just drove it's essentially like you know a mini snow plow but instead of a plow it's just like a big a big brush and it, it just it just you know obliterates the snow basically it's just like or you know you could have a snow blower that you push um you know people have those too um there's really no reason there's no excuse that the city can't you know that, that can't become a, a city service um and if it doesn't and we continue plowing the streets for cars then it just shows that um people who are not driving cars are still being discriminated against uh in a, a very official way so in this comic it's like people you know people on the sidewalk that are struggling to walk on piles of snow or, or asking how can you bike in the winter and you have this uh the person on the bicycle um we'll call uh call this person bikey face um who is you know just riding a bike taking the lane um because there is literally um you know it's only like one lane worth like from wall to wall from, you know side to side with snow is plowed to either side and there's a car behind and the car is angry and it's like get out of my way move over you know stupid bicyclist and uh so yeah it's like Meanwhile, the lane is sparkling clear. Um, you know, people can't get across the street because there's these snow piles there. Um, and it's just a general mess. Um, you know, my personal, uh, one of my real, real big pet peeves in the winter is that not only does the, the sidewalks generally get ignored, but then um, the plows come and just keep plowing the snow into the curb ramps. And you get these big slush pile, slush puddles um, because even if somebody takes the, makes the effort to clear that, you know, the curb ramp so you can get across the street, uh, it's you know, then the plow will come along and just push the snow right back there, and it's just really, uh, it's really infuriating, and uh, this ha that has to change. Um, and so there's a nice comment thread on on this uh, on this post that that um, you might be interested in checking out, and uh, 
you know, talking about how, uh, yeah. Um, and, and I should say while we're talking about this, that I've said before that, um, you know, the, the drivers always say, oh, yeah, well, we pay taxes. And it's like, no, um, you know, the, the gas tax funds a small portion of the uh, state and federal highways uh, maintenance of those only. And uh, it doesn't cover it covers somewhere usually somewhere between like uh, 40 and 80 percent uh, of those costs. Um, but it doesn't even touch local roads. Uh, local roads are paid for entirely out of general revenues, which are uh, primarily property taxes, um, but also, you know, potentially things like sales taxes and, and other revenue sources. So uh, bicycles actually pay more or subsidizing drivers because, you know, we don't we don't get we don't put any really put any wear and tear on the streets at all. And, uh, and, you know, clearly we're not getting that much out of it. Uh, the system doesn't work for, for bikes and pedestrians, so clearly we're not getting anything out of it. But um, we're, we're subsidizing the hell out of it, and that, that has to change. Um, so there, there is that. And as far as um, other cycling news, um, there's an article from a news station in Houston, Texas. Um, entitled, Avid Cyclist Believes She Cheated Death After Being Hit From Behind. Uh, first of all, can I take issue with this this avid cyclist thing? Like, what do we do? We call people avid motorists if they just happen to get, you know, use their car to get to work every day? Is this, why are you an avid cyclist? You're just like, you know, it implies that you're like a, you know, sort of like, you know, you're, you're so serious about the bike and you're crazy about it. It's like, no, you're just a person who's using their bike to get around. Um, anyway, uh, she, so... She was hit by a truck from behind uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, yeah, and so she, she talks about what happened. And um, the, oh, I love this, right? Uh, the, the driver who hit her also stuck around, uh, but William still holds him entirely responsible. Well, no shit. First of all, like he stuck around. Why is that newsworthy? Like, should, is it like acceptable that people don't stick around sometimes? Like that's that's fucked up, and. Uh, yeah, and then, so she says she, she still holds him entirely responsible. Of course, I mean, you know, you hit somebody from behind. Like, that's that's illegal and dangerous, obviously. I mean, that's, that's not cool. Um, but, of course, their um, investigators stopped by her house this past weekend to interview her about the accident. Authorities haven't said if the driver who hit her could be cited or charged. Well, hello, you hit somebody from behind, you know... There's almost no conceivable circumstance in which this could, you know, it's not the fault of the driver. Um, somebody wrote it on the Facebook page and said, if you, uh, um, I think it was Daniel, I wrote, said, um, you know, did she have lights? And uh, and I obviously I don't know, uh, but it, I think that's basically, I think that's completely irrelevant because, uh, well, first of all, like lights help, lights certainly help, but they don't always prevent incidents. Um, they don't always, they don't guarantee total visibility. And also, uh, whether, you know, that's like, it's like a lot of times the media will ask uh, whether she was wearing a helmet. Um, it doesn't actually say that in, the, in this article. It doesn't say anything about a helmet. So I'm, I'm kind of surprised that they didn't bring that up because they always do. And they're always like, oh, so-and-so was wearing a helmet or was not wearing a helmet. It's like, well, it doesn't really make, it doesn't really make a difference in terms of, you know, the, the specifics of, of the incident. Um, and so it's the same thing with, with the lights. Like, yeah, you know, it's a great idea for people to have lights, and I really want people to have lights, but um, it is not having lights is, is not an excuse for somebody to hit you. Somebody needs to be paying attention. Um, you know, if you're if you're driving and you know at 70 miles an hour on a freeway at, at night, and you you know you got your headlights, and then 
um, you need to, even then like you need to be able to stop within the range of your headlights, right? So uh, you know I know most drivers don't don't act like that, but but that's their responsibility. You know if you if you can't see things, you know if you can't see a bicycle because they don't have lights, uh, you know what doesn't that mean like you're not going to see a you know, a pedestrian or somebody walking home or, you know, a kid running to chase a ball or, you know, a dog running across the street or a deer or, you know, um, and I said this recently, like, you know, arguing with people who hit, who, um, you know, said they hit a deer and it's like, I, there's no excuse for that. Like, it's just, you know, unless like if your car is like stopped and a deer is like running at you from the other direction, like that's something different a deer runs into your car that's obviously different but if you're just like if there's a deer crossing the street and like you hit it like there's no excuse for that you have to be able to see what's going on on the road and be able to stop within the range of what you can see and anticipate um so this is sort of this is sort of the same thing and it just gets get me a little worked up to to hear that because it was like what the hell it doesn't really matter if it doesn't matter if you have lights. I mean, you certainly it's good that you should have lights and everything. But you know, it's like if you, it's, it's sort of like if, if uh, you know if a car hits another car and then the the car that got hit is like or the the, the car that hit the other car the, the driver is is like it's like well you know the car was black I didn't see it. It's like it doesn't it doesn't matter. You got to pay attention. You got to look, and that's still your responsibility. Um, so that got me a little um, annoyed. <laughs> so that's what I got to say about that. Um, but Daniel is a great listener, and he sends a lot of great comments, so uh, I'm hoping to keep hearing from him a lot. Um, another person who's been sending comments that I love hearing from uh, is Eli. In, uh, he said, I believe he's in western Massachusetts, um, biking in mostly pretty rural areas and uh, dealing with a lot of uh, strange situations. Um, and um, I'm sure he'll write in more about that in the future, and we can talk more. And he actually sent me a, a post about biking in the snow, and I... Um, but meaning to have a look at it, so I'm getting to it. Um, but Eli wrote in uh, regarding the episode, the interview that I did with Mark Ibunya about, on, uh, this is episode 41, about uh, rail safety. We were talking about the Metro North train derailment and, uh, and some of the issues in, in rail safety. And um, So one of the things we talked about was you know increasing automation and computer signaling and all that. So Eli writes, Something of interest to me that your guest only hinted at with increasing automation, do human operators grow disengaged and complacent? It's extremely difficult to stay focused and vigilant when you're not actually doing anything except looking out for a potential catastrophe, which might never occur during an operator's entire career. Um, so I think this is—I think what Eli is getting at here is that you know we, we talked about uh, the issue of um, what we're saying. Basically, you can improve safety by by having computerized signal systems that can control the train or you know can stop the train if it blows a signal or you know that kind of thing. Um, or if it's in a work zone or whatever, and you know we kind of kind of implied that you know that working along with a human, um, in many cases trains are now controlled by computers. Um, obviously, you have to have a totally dedicated right of way and all that. Um, but there are also many trains that are still not controlled. They, they don't have any computer function at all. It's just a human. So um, I think what Eli is saying is that you know if you have something that's operated, that's either operated by a computer. And have a human there monitoring. Let's say, let's take Bart, uh, the Bay Area Rapid Transit in San Francisco, for as an example. Um, they uh, have, you know, their trains are computer operated, but they have a, a human sitting in the front at all times, and, uh, and that person opens the doors. But the person also is is supposed to be watching out in the front, you know, for any hazards or anything like that, um, and can take over if there's a problem. You know, they can drive it in manual mode as well. 
Um, and there are other systems like that. And then there are, you know, a system like, uh, you know, the MBTA's heavy rail lines, um, the subway lines, um, not the green line, just the, the red, orange, and blue lines, um, or New York City subway or any, many other similar systems where uh, there is a, there's a, a person driving the train, but there is also a computer system that is monitoring the signals and, and switches and things. And so if, if something goes wrong, it can stop the train. So let's say if, you, if there's a red signal and the train doesn't stop for the red signal, the, there is a mechanism that, you know, an arm which essentially causes the train to lose all its air and then it can't operate anymore. Um, that, sorry for that terrible explanation, but that's, that's about the extent of my understanding of how it works. Um, it's basically a little arm, and the train hits the arm because the arm is up raised, is raised up, and when it hits the arm, it, like all the air goes out. And I don't know. Somebody can probably explain this much better, and if you can, like write in and tell me. Um, but so that kind of system where you know it's being driven by a person, but the computer is is able to intervene if something goes wrong. Um, so I think we're talking about those two, and and so I think what Eli is saying is that you know if you're not if your job if, if you're worried. Like, if you're not worried about really something going wrong, because, like, if the computer is there to, to keep you from having a catastrophic error, or if the computer's just doing all the work and you're supposed to just keep an eye on it, like, you know, what if you're just, like, looking out the window to the left, or, you know, what if you're just, you know, you're just not really paying attention? And that's... This is an issue with uh, with cars, you know. Um, he uh, he says this as well for, for uh, car drivers. Um, so he, like, continues... I wonder if the case of train operators can offer any insight on this because I strongly suspect that it's a big problem with motor vehicle drivers on regular roads. So much of the technology of cars serves to isolate the driver from their environment and disengage them from the task of driving. The enclosure dampens the sound of the road uh, and partially blocks the view of the road. The suspension dampens the feeling of the road, and these are getting ever more effective. Engines are getting quieter and smoother, too. So you get much less feedback about your speed and handling and conditions on the road. Automatic transmission and cruise control mean you don't need to be as aware of your speed. Now I hear talk of automatic braking and electronic warnings when you start to make a bad lane change. Uh, I know I'll get a warning. I might look if I know I'll get a warning. I might look less carefully when I make a lane change. The design of the roads themselves seems to contribute to this as well. Excessive traffic controls, wide lanes, wide shoulders, rumble strips, clear zones, setbacks, dividers. Access ramps, to me, it all seems to be directed toward isolation and disengagement. Um, and, and to that, I'd add, thank you, Eli. And to that, I'd add, uh, yeah, um, you know, th this has been documented actually, um, and this may be something we should talk about. Um, I'm blanking on the name of the, the author who wrote about this, really, you know, one of the people who studied this, um, and I know there are others too. Um, the, the idea that the, the the road infrastructure is more forgiving. Uh, just what Eli is talking about here: how the cars are, uh, you know, cars are stu the cars have been been made much much safer for the people inside the cars, um, and and also the roads are much more forgiving, right? So you got your wide lanes, you got your 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 uh, guardrails, and you know, the, and all these these protected left turn signals, and all these other things that we're talking about here. Uh, you know, are drivers then, you know, less careful or, you know, it's less critical that you need to pay attention to some of these things or you just, because you don't, or maybe not even that you think that way, but because you don't have to make such complex decisions all the time, you're just not used to it or, you know, some, some kind of variation of that is, is what Eli's getting at. And I think that's a great point. Um, I think that's really, it's really something to consider and it's, it's certainly a problem with cars as cars have gotten, 
you know, more enclosed and, and more isolated and, and more forgiving, um, it's things would become safer for the people inside the car, but much less safe for the people outside the car. I think that's a really valid point. Um, and I, I, the other thing is that I think um, for, for transit, you know, we're talking about, I mean, the safest setup is uh, probably having a, a human operated with a computer backup system. Um, but even then, this is still, it's still a valid, still a valid, valid point. Um, and we should remember that, you know, the only time that the computer can operate a train or, um, you know, can be like a, you know, complete total backup is if there is a completely dedicated right of way. So if you have, you know, um, essentially the typical subway system, um, you know, the subway line where it's, you know, there's no, there's no interaction with motor vehicles or pedestrians or anything else. It's just, it's just totally unobstructed. Um, and even then, you know, you have stations. And so you, there's the issue of, you know, if somebody's leaning over the, over the, um, the platform edge or, you know, falls down, this happens in New York all the time. Um, but of course in New York, having the human operator doesn't necessarily uh, prevent people from being killed that way because sometimes it, it happens that, uh, the trains go very fast coming into the station, and so, you know, if if the person is is like really close to the beginning of the station, and you know, the operator can't see in time because these are you know these are giant metal you know forty what is, each car is forty tons, so you're talking about okay four hundred tons of uh, steel coming at you know forty miles an hour or whatever. It's like and so maybe the solution could be to you know to that problem could be like go slower, but um, and maybe you know it's just like sort of how much do you. Um, how much emphasis do you put on safety as opposed to sort of speed and, uh, you know, reliability and, um, the, the pushback that you'd get from like New York city transit, for example, is, you know, we're carrying, you know, X number of thousand people per hour. And, you know, we, we literally, like if we, if our trains go slower, we literally can't run as many trains in the same time period. And, our trains and stations are packed to the gills and we literally just, we just don't have the room for that kind of thing. Um, which is a really valid, really valid pushback. Um, but New York, it might be, is one of the few places in the world, I guess, you know, that really has to deal with this. I mean, I should say few, I mean, there's at least a dozen, but I mean, you know, you're talking about these major cities, these, you know, New York and London and Tokyo and Shanghai and Dubai and these, these, you know, these giant cities, um, is really what we're talking about in that case. Um, but I think that, you know, it's, it's very valid to have a, a second, you know, a second set of eyes, whether that be a, you know, a computer or, or a person. Um, and we talked on the podcast about, about some systems moving away from two, having two operators on the train, you know, one person in the front and one person controlling the doors. Um, you know, maybe, maybe as we move more towards automation, you know, maybe you're, you're giving a control center more responsibility so a person in a control center can see what's going on in front of, the, of like a driverless train but you know what if that person's not paying attention or you know gets distracted or whatever so it's a it's an interesting interesting thought and I, I'd love to hear more about if people have more thoughts on this I'd love to hear hear about that um, the um, oh we lay wrote back and he said it's a you know the problem is that it's a it doesn't take into account the effect of perceived safety on behavior. Um, so yeah, if it's forgiving of error, then it, uh, makes people feel comfortable driving faster and more carelessly. Um, so that's sort of the thing for, for drivers and, uh, and yeah. And, um, right. Also, it doesn't treat education and law enforcement as important parts of the safety equation. 
It assumes that people will drive badly, that their driving will not improve, and that they will not be taken off the road. So it aims to make cars and roads idiot-proof, which is impossible. Um, that's a that's really interesting. Um, yeah, it's like we have no system for evaluating whether somebody is capable of, of doing that or not, and so we just we just try to make it you know the lowest common denominator essentially, um, and you know that's not really a good way to go because these are very complicated places. The roads are very complicated places where you know complicated situations, and you have to make a, a lot of complex decisions, and it's you know there's not really room for for just this. It's not like a I don't know, it's not just this big, big buffer space, you know, like you just, you know, it's not so simple is, is what, what Eli's saying. So thank you, Eli, for writing in, and uh, please, if anybody ha else has any thoughts, please uh, please send those in, because I'm, I'm really interested to hear those um, thoughts about uh, this whole safety thing. Um, it's really interesting to me. Oh, and then uh, this really important story that uh, just is just pretty new, actually, um, and happened uh, yesterday think at this point when I'm recording it. Uh, a freight train loaded with crude oil derailed in the U.S. state of North Dakota on Monday, causing an explosion that sent a massive plume of toxic smoke skyward and forced the evacuation of part of a small town. This is uh, this town is called Castleton, North Dakota. It is uh, a little bit west of Fargo, which is a, you know, a decent-sized city in the, uh, the probably, I think probably the biggest city in North Dakota. Uh, it is on the eastern side on the border with Minnesota. And, you know, it, this is, I mean, how many times does this have to happen, but, you know, before we just get serious about this? I mean, we got the these uh, tar sands, you know, this, we're trying to build this Keystone XL pipeline, um, you know, and we got carrying all this oil out of the tar sands. It's like, you know, and, and so that's, right now, this this is coming from, this is a result of, of fracking here, this, uh, this incident, um, because these trains are carrying lots of, uh, you know, of... of there's a big, a lot of fracking going on, hydraulic fracturing going on in uh, western North Dakota right now. It's all, you know, hopefully you're, you're familiar uh, by now with, uh, with fracking. Well, if not, I should explain. Uh, fracking is basically this idea of, of coming in and pumping uh, millions of gallons of water and uh, in all kinds of toxic chemicals and sand, um, which has to be mined, uh, a special kind of sand called frac sand. Uh, they just pump it into the ground at really, really high pressure. And the idea is that what it does with that pressure, it just then like kind of breaks up the rock and it loosens the, the uh, so-called natural gas that's, or, or the oil or whatever the hell it is. Um, it's supposed to be natural gas, they call it. Uh, you know, not really anything natural about that. Um, but it loosens that, that disgusting liquid stuff. Um, <laughs> for like, you know, yeah, it, is, it is natural gas. Um, and so, yeah, it loosens that and then it, then becomes available to be extracted up to the surface, and the wells are very deep. You know, you're you're drilling like you know a mile deep or something, and so they're like, oh yeah, it's totally safe, it's totally safe, you know. But I mean, of course, there's all kinds of toxins being pumped into the into the planet. You know, we got to transport this stuff, and a lot of people are have been reporting that uh, you know they can light their water on fire. I mean, hello, like because there's like benzene and formaldehyde and shit in there. They can light the water on fire. It's literally like there's there, people are getting getting so sick because of fracking, and and then the you know the EPA and the federal government is basically because of you know corporate friendly loopholes they've kind of left this thing up to the states individual states and individual states don't have resources to, to go and you know and do all the investigations and everything and duplicate each other and the you know the governors are essentially being bought off by the uh, the corporate interests here so. Um, 
yeah, it's just it's just a really horrible horrible thing, and we know how to we know how to uh, power our society without doing this, and it's disgusting. Um, but anyway, this um, this is a little uh, little song that I uh, that I found, um, and I think sort of captures uh, what's what's going on, and it it talks in here about lighting the water on fire, and so I wanted to put that that context in there. is a form of natural gas filling an alternative to oil because the oil caps fill and bring it just a small town so everybody's willing people turn on the lights and the drill is making killing water goes into the pipe the pipe into the ground the pressure cranks fish is 7,000 feet down the cracks release the gas that powers your town that will frack yeah totally frack but there's more in the water than just H2O toxic chemicals help to make the fluid flow with names like benzene and formaldehyde you better keep a pull away from the water supply the drillers say the fishes are a mile below the groundwater pumped into American homes but don't tell it to the residents of Subway, yo, that was right. We're talking fancy. What the fuck is going on? With all this fracking going on, I think we need some facts to come to light. I know we want our energy, but nothing never comes for free. I think my water's on fire put links to that song and uh, the, the one that I'm going to play uh, to close out the show in a few minutes. Uh, we're rapidly approaching. Um, but I, I just want to say that. I mean, uh, the this song seems to suggest that uh, fracking can be done safely. Um, it's sort of the idea that, okay, you know, if we try to test the water and whatever, but it's like, no, the whole thing is just is just totally unsafe. I mean, you're you're putting all this shit into the ground at super high pressure. I mean, you're, you're basically causing earthquakes here. Um, you know, and all the chemicals that are in the ground, you know, it's just... It's, it's totally unsafe and it's totally unnecessary as well. It's just being done to uh, enrich the uh, corporate, corporate profits, as, uh, as is the way that we do things in this country. So, um, Anyway, back to North Dakota and this, this train accident. Um, and certainly we'll hear more about this stuff, uh, you know, just in perpetuity. 
Um, it's all centered around the town of uh, Williston, North Dakota, as in the northwest part of the state. And apparently, it's the state is pretty much being destroyed by by this. I mean, you got you got all these these trucks coming in and working constantly. You got the fracking is is destroying the water. You know, it's it's just a it's a real real mess. I mean, I've talked to people who have uh, done try to do bike tours through there, and um, you have to take this big detour route now. You can't go through there. It's just too dangerous to ride through there. Apparently, with all the with all the trucks and everything else just going on. Um, it's it's just a big mess, and um, so you know we're bringing this oil, um, you know, by train uh, one way, and um, it's just you know how many how many times does this have to happen? Happened in Quebec, happened in, uh, elsewhere in Canada recently. Um, I know it's happened in the U.S. before. It's you know, and you have to evacuate this whole town. It's like you know what? Uh, like we know how to we know how to we need to really conserve energy, and we know how to produce renewable energy. And run our system systems that we do need on renewable energy, and like why? How much does how much does it have to do we have to take before, uh, you know, before this is going to change? Um, and I don't want to go on ranting forever about this because this is something I've talked at length about before. Um, but I just had to I had to include that there because this is, uh, you know, it's a very important I think a very important story and something that's uh, you know we're just going to keep hearing more and more of that and. Uh, North Dakota right now, the uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railway, uh, BNSF, is is struggling right now to meet the demand. Um, it apparently has like record high demands for train traffic because of all the the oil shipments. And you know, while I support freight rail, and I think freight rail is great. Uh, I think there's you know there's obviously other ways to uh, you know other things that we we should really be carrying around. But um, they apparently they're having a, a lot of trouble accommodating that, and Amtrak is going to be cutting back. Uh, I heard news. I haven't been able to verify this, but I've heard uh, from some pretty reliable people that uh, Amtrak is going to be reducing its Empire Builder train. It, that's this long distance train that goes from Chicago to uh, Spokane, Washington, and then splits in two and goes to Portland and or Seattle. Um, and that, you know, they're, they're actually reducing it right now. It runs once a day each direction. And uh, so I guess it's going to be less than once a day, maybe a couple times a week, um, and that's because it's you know it's the freight traffic, the oil traffic is being prioritized over Amtrak, and uh, Amtrak actually had to cancel a whole bunch of trips, like several days or like five days in a row, just just a week or two ago, uh, they had to cancel a whole bunch of trips because they because of the delays associated with this increasing freight traffic they were so far behind schedule that they literally they were literally like days behind schedule and they had you know i mean you got to pay people to do these shifts and now you need people to do the you know the shifts like people are losing like they're three days behind you don't have enough crew members so they literally had to cancel a whole bunch of trains and just try to try to get people back to where they where they're supposed to where they belong and kind of start over you know and it's um and it's just only it's only going to get worse um and it's uh, you know very unfortunate, and really, what we should be we should be having much faster train service. We shouldn't be having this, you know, this. <laughs> so um, that's uh, I wanted to I wanted to throw that in there, and uh, I think we've officially gone past the one hour mark. That is a bummer because I'm always trying to get on there. All right, I'm done. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed uh, the interview with Matt Steele. And you can find him at streets.mn, and I'll put links up on uh, criticaltransit.com/slash forty three. And uh, as in, uh, you know, 43rd episode, and uh, I try to do that for all of them, so um, hopefully I remember, because uh, I have to do it manually, uh, I don't know why. Um, so yeah, so you can go to criticaltransit.com, so I have 43, and uh, you can get the show notes for this episode, and uh, including the articles that I, that I mentioned, and uh, you can send your feedback. You 
should. Please do that. Uh, send feedback to uh, feedback at criticaltransit.com. Or you can uh, you can find a contact form on the, on the website, uh, criticaltransit.com slash contact. Or you can find me on Twitter at Critical Transit or at Facebook at Critical Transit. And uh, somewhere on LinkedIn as well, I think. Um, you can probably find me through all that other stuff. Um, I don't know what the link is for, for that thing. But um, in any case, uh, I will be... Next week we'll be talking with Aaron from Trillium Transit, uh, talking about uh, a bunch of things related to uh, ITS, you know, IT type stuff for transit. Uh, you know, a little bit of web design, but a lot about uh, open data and uh, using data to improve transit service. Which is uh, we had a really interesting conversation. We went really, really long. So next week is going to be, I think it's going to be just that. Um, yeah. So that's uh, that's what's coming up. So go to criticaltransit.com and. Uh, if you like the show, uh, tell your friends and colleagues. You know, spread the word around. Uh, that's how the show can uh, can grow and get more people involved. And uh, and if you uh, appreciate what you're hearing, consider making a donation to support this work, uh, so that I can keep doing it and uh, do more of it and uh, better work. So um, yeah, go go there. Um, CriticalTransit.com is the website, and I'll talk to you uh, next week. Have a happy new year and all that other stuff that uh, people are celebrating. And uh, yeah, that's it. Oh